So Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 10, as we give our attention to God's word this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. We're going to end there as we focus on those last words, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. May God bless his word to us. On August 5th, 10 years ago, 2012, a white supremacist entered a Sikh temple in Wisconsin and opened fire. The first responder was a man named Lieutenant Brian Murphy. In the course of events, Murphy was shot 15 times, but he lived to talk about it. Three of those shots, doctors later said, would have almost certainly killed him instantly, were it not for one piece of equipment that he was wearing that day, his body armor. It literally saved his life. Most of us, I think, are familiar with body armor. We've seen it maybe just in the news, in pictures, uh, plate carriers, front and back on soldiers or many frontline personnel. Some of you have worn it yourselves at work, I'm sure. And that picture of modern body armor that we sometimes see gives us a helpful illustration of the illustration that Paul uses in our passage this morning. As we continue in Ephesians chapter 6, we come now, as we look at the armor of God, to the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate is the English translation of a Greek word that gives us the biological term thorax. If you've ever studied biology or insects, you've probably come across that word thorax. And that's just the Greek word here. But thorax in ancient Greece, the thorax was the armor, as one historian tells us, that covered the body from neck to thighs, consisting of two parts, one covering the front and the other covering the back. In other words, the breastplate covered what we would call the vital 
organs. Vital comes from a word which means life. They are vital. It's a matter of life and death. We read about the foolish son in Proverbs chapter 7 who was ambushed by adultery, but who thought he was okay and thought he'd be okay playing with fire. But then Proverbs 7.23 says, till an arrow pierces his liver, little knowing it will cost him his life. Vital organs that if something pierces, it kills. One writer says, a warrior in ancient times without a thorax, a breastplate, was naked and exposed to every threat of the enemy. And so, beloved, I hope you see that the importance of this next piece of armor is obvious. It is a vital piece of armor. Having already emphasized the truth, the being girded, belted around with truth, the first vital truth through the Spirit that Paul writes about is righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness simply means doing what is right and not doing what is wrong. It is to be according to the law of God, that's the standard, both without fault on the one hand and positively obedient on the other hand. Righteousness. It is, as one writer says, integrity, virtue, purity of life, uprightness, Correctness in thinking, feeling, and acting. That is righteousness. It is also in the Bible the state of being acceptable to and accepted by God. It has the sense of justice. Rendering to each person his due. What is just or righteous for him or her to receive. It's all part of righteousness. But righteousness, it's very clear in the Bible, righteousness must always be seen in light of God's being and character. God's being and character define righteousness. God's law in the Bible, summarized in the Ten Commandments, flows out of his holy character. And so does righteousness. In Psalm 7, verse 9, God is called the righteous God. That's who he is. He is good and he does good. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the righteous God. And Daniel 9, 14 says, The Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. He is righteous, and he does what is righteous. Now, in terms of this breastplate that we wear 
as Christians in our spiritual battle against the wiles of the devil and against the spiritual powers of this dark world, there has been a difference of opinion as to what exactly this righteousness of this breastplate is referring to. That's because the Bible speaks about righteousness in different ways. And so we need that biblical background before we come to this passage. As we've said, God is righteous. And when he created Adam and Eve in the beginning, they were created in his image and likeness. They were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God looked at them, Adam and Eve, as created the first human beings, our first parents, And when God looked at them, he included them along with everything else that God has made when he said that it was all very good. Adam, as created, was righteous. And God entered into an arrangement with Adam. The covenant, we call it sometimes, that solemn arrangement, that required of Adam personal, perfect obedience in order to be blessed, because God is righteous. He can only bless perfect righteousness. That's sometimes called the covenant of works. It required of Adam a legal righteousness. The whole law of God obeyed by the whole person, thoughts, words, and actions. Righteousness, in other words, in heart, head, and hands. Thoroughgoing, perfect, personal righteousness. The Bible tells us that Adam sinned. He did what was unrighteous as he ate that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was sin not only for himself, but as our representative, as the representative of humanity, when he fell, we all fell. And what does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean for every human being? Well, we could ask that question with older language if we put it this way. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? And some of you are going, that's the question of the catechism that we're going over tonight, and it is. What did Adam's fall do and effect, and what effect did it have on all of his descendants who have been born in an ordinary way? Well, listen to the answer. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists of the guilt, in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, the lack of original righteousness. That righteousness, the original righteousness wherein Adam was, is gone. It's shattered. The corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. In other words, we sin. You and I sin because we are conceived as sinners. 
We sang about it in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so Paul says in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one, what? Righteous. No, not one. That's where we need to begin. After we've seen the righteousness of God, as we think of our own lives, our own existence, before God, there is no one righteous, no, not one. We need to all see that, and we need to understand that of all of us together. We're all in the same boat. You know, sometimes people come to churches, and they look around, and they see people in their nice clothes with everyone sitting quietly and everything, and they think, oh, those people are righteous, but not me. We believe the Bible here. There is no one righteous. No, not one. We all have that even playing field, that equality as we come before God. God is righteous. We are not. He is perfectly just. And he must must punish sin. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, of those who had stubborn, unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. No one is going to get an unjust, an an unrighteous judgment at the last great day. That may happen in the world in human courts, but God is righteous. The day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, 10 years ago, there was another story in the news. January 16th, 2012. Jeb Corliss. He's an American base jumper. That means he finds high things and jumps off them. He's also a wingsuit flyer, if you've ever seen that. Looks like a flying squirrel with the material in between your arms and your legs. January 16, 2012, Jeb Corliss jumped off Table Mountain in Cape Town, South Africa. Halfway down, because he was showing off probably, he hit some rocks and nearly died. He didn't die, though, and afterward in an interview, he said his problem was that he stopped being afraid. He said, quote, fear is a super important thing. Without fear, you will die. I'm sure that applies to wingsuit jumpers. But how many people see that what is true for jumping off a cliff is so much more true for stepping into eternity? Romans 3.18, Paul says of people, there is no fear of God before their eyes. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. There is a judgment And God is righteous, 
And no one in this life born into this world in and of themselves are righteous. Martin Luther said he hated God because God was righteous. This was in his life as a monk, a Roman Catholic monk. When he would do all kinds of things, he would would sometimes spend six hours in confession. He would pray sometimes and not eat or drink for three days for all the prayers that he knew he was supposed to pray, but he didn't pray. He would sleep outside without any clothes in the snow. He would beat himself. He, and he, he knew that the holy God must punish sin or God would not be good. But no matter what Luther did, he knew he couldn't be righteous enough. Until Martin Luther saw something else amazing in the Bible about righteousness. Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There is a righteousness, a perfect God-satisfying judgment-passing righteousness that is a gift from God. It is a gift by grace and so received by faith alone. And that righteousness comes in a person, God the Son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Isaiah spoke of Jesus And in one place in Isaiah 59, he said of the Lord, the Lord saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. That's Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. He lived a perfectly righteous life, made like us in every way, yet without sin. And he died a death on the cross for his unrighteous people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jeremiah spoke of Jesus, Jeremiah 23. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. That name of the Savior, that name of Jesus, is sometimes by historians called the watchword of the Reformation. The watchword of the Reformation. What was the Reformation all about? Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. The Reformation of the 16th century was the greatest revival in church history after the book of Acts. 
Because God's people, by grace, rediscovered and believed what Paul wrote in Romans 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And friends, for spiritually bankrupt, unrighteous sinners, that is the only good news that there is. That there is a righteousness from God. A gift from God, given freely by grace and received by faith alone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, so as to be just, righteous, and the one who justifies or who declares righteous those who have faith in Jesus. Do you know the righteousness of God in Christ? Are you still trying to establish your own? God, I'll try to be better. God, I'll, I'll quit that bad habit. That's your own righteousness. And the Greek word for your own there is the word that gives us the word idiotic. It's idiotic righteousness. Oh, listen to Titus, verse 3. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There is a gift of perfect righteousness for all who come and confess their sin and look to the Lord, our righteousness, Jesus Christ. Luther said, once the justice, the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, but now it became inexpressibly sweet in greater love. And so this is sometimes called evangelical righteousness, gospel righteousness, the righteousness that is received from God in Jesus Christ. And it has two parts. The righteousness of Christ for us, which covers us, which is our justification, being declared righteous in the sight of God, all for the merit of Christ and received by faith alone. But then there's also the righteous life in us, sanctification, that those whom God justifies, he also changes, he sanctifies them. One righteousness is imputed, the righteousness of Christ. The other is imparted, it is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, which righteousness is this breastplate? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. There are arguments that you'll read on both sides. 
I think there are better arguments for the first, that it's that justifying righteousness, that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, because it is the armor of God. It is the breastplate of literally the righteousness. It is the righteousness that we need to protect us in battle. But there are arguments, as I said, for the other righteousness. Many commentators would point us in that direction. So this morning, we'll just look at that first righteousness and Lord willing, this afternoon, the second. But the first righteousness, the righteousness of Christ covering you is obviously the most vital. And without it, the second type of righteousness is impossible. In Ephesians 6.14, we again have that word clothed, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The NIV says having the breastplate of righteousness in place. That misses the richness. This is a breastplate with which you are clothed. And you remember that's a great gospel word. As believers, you are clothed with Christ. When it was minus 32... I didn't mind going out because I have inherited a coat from my father. He died. I get his down-filled coat. And so I could go out into that minus 32 and I was covered. Someone died to provide a breastplate of righteousness for you so that you can go out into your life and into the spiritual battle against the devil and so that you can face judgment, even the holy judgment of God one day and be covered. And without it, you're doomed. You're a naked warrior. What a breastplate this is, the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Sometimes in English, you'll, you'll see the word cuirass. It's basically the French word for breastplate because the early ones were made of leather. Queer is the French word for leather, cuirass. But eventually they became made of metal even the ancient breastplates, and now they're made of of ceramic and Kevlar. But this breastplate, this breastplate for, for Christians is made of nothing perishable, but it's made of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is made of gospel metal forged in the furnace of Christ's suffering and polished by the perfect obedience of his life. There's none like it. There's none like it. What a piece of spiritual armor it is for you if you're a Christian. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the breastplate of the righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. 
The only way to survive spiritually is with Christ's perfect righteousness as your breastplate. And this is why I think it must be this first and foremost, because our righteousness as a breastplate would be a piece of armor filled with holes. Do you remember 1 Kings twenty-two thirty-four? 34? Someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. And the king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. There was a chink in his armor. And that arrow shot at random, found it. But the devil doesn't need to shoot at random. He could easily point out all kinds of holes in your obedience and your righteousness and mine. But the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ is impenetrable. For those who have trusted in Christ, we read in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the only breastplate that can withstand the devil's schemes. How does the devil come to you in this spiritual battle? How is he coming to you maybe even this morning? To those who are not trusting in Christ, if you haven't trusted in Christ this morning, this is how he'll come to you. You don't need him. What are you doing here with these religious fanatics anyway? You don't need all this silly armor stuff. These kids' stories. There's no judgment. Or even if there is, God won't be so strict. You'll be okay. God is love. The devil can masquerade as an angel of light. He can quote scripture for his own purposes. God is love. Yes, he is. But he's also light. He's righteous. R.C. Sproul once said, we have substituted the unconditional love of God for the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. If God loves us all unconditionally, who needs the righteousness of Christ? That's the devil coming and saying, you don't need that. You'll be okay. But Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Charles Spurgeon said, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit, which makes people look to themselves for salvation. Oh, friend, God has provided a breastplate of perfect righteousness. Take it. Take it. Don't leave here this morning without it on. Take it. It's free. It's given by God for you to take. Take it. Put it on by faith. Well, if the devil comes and tries to get people to think they can be acceptable without Christ, he also comes to believers 
and tries to attack often with this thought, I may not be acceptable even with Christ. Well, once he minimized your sin, now he tries to magnify it. And he says, look at you. Just look at you. Look at your life. What a mess it is. How could you ever be acceptable and loved by a holy God? Satan is an orthodox theologian in many ways. He knows about God's day of judgment. And so he plays the part of the accuser, the witness for the prosecution, as we read in Zechariah 3. You know, there's no such thing, experts will tell you, there's no such thing really as a bulletproof vest. Depends what vest it is, and it certainly depends what bullet it is. But the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ is impenetrable to any accusation, to any judgment. Beloved, gospel faith never first listens to the the words, look at you. It hears Jesus saying, look at me. Look to me and be saved. There's a way that people don't look at themselves enough to bring them to confession and repentance before God. But there are many ways that as Christians we spend too much time looking at ourselves. Look to me and be saved. And as you're fighting this spiritual battle, you need to look to Jesus again this morning. And you need to believe what he says, that there is a breastplate of righteousness covering you, covering your vital organs spiritually. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The good fight of faith is not an easy fight to fight. Luther said, I have preached for 25 years and I still don't understand the verse. He who through faith is righteous shall live. He said, if I could really believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head with joy. I did not learn my theology all at once, he said, but had to search deeper for it where my trials and temptations took me. Where have your trials taken you today? Where have the trials of life taken you today? Do you need to see again and afresh the blessing of this piece of spiritual armor, the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ? But of course, Luther did understand enough to know that this breastplate was covering him, it was clothing his heart so that he could pray. And maybe this could be your prayer this morning. You, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness, but I am your sin. You have taken on yourself what you were not and have given me what I was not. 
Dear Lord Jesus, I feel my sins. They bite and gnaw and frighten me. Where shall I go? I look to you, Lord Jesus, and I believe in you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Charles Hodge said, Only the perfect righteousness of Christ covering you can resist the accusations of conscience, the whispers of despondency, the power of temptation, the severity of the law, and the assaults of Satan. I'm not really all that into poetry, but I do have a favorite poet, and he was a preacher. He's a Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane. And one of his poems was entitled, The Lord Our Righteousness. But he used the Hebrew words for those English words, the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. And it captures it all. Everything that we've been thinking about and hearing this morning, listen to these words. Once, and he's speaking autobiographically, once I was a stranger to grace and to God, I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But e'en when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Tzidkenu, t'was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Tzidkenu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Tzidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Tzidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Tzidkenu, I never can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Tzidkenu, my death song shall be. Stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place.